0: The Congo's Virunga National Park has been ensnared in years of bloody conflict. National Geographic Explorer correspondent Justin Hall shows whether this vast natural resource can uplift the Congo's fortunes.
1: Along the border of Virunga, four million people live. And they have pretty much nothing but nature to rely on.
0: Find out what lies beyond the horizon with author and traveler Christopher Manny, who has taken some unconventional means to travel around the world.
2: People who believe that they're going to set off and explore the world by motorcycle, by bicycle, or with a Land Rover, and that all their issues and problems will be solved, um, that's not true.
0: Travel personality Samantha Brown joins forces with AARP to promote the centennial of the U.S. National Park Service. Finally, the United Nations Dr mish till rossler tells us how conflicts around the globe are imperiling unesco world heritage sites join us as we talk to intrepid travelers explore america's national parks world heritage sites and pay a visit to the philippines and northern florida on world footprints radio with ian
3: and tanya fitzpatrick In the hour, we'll talk to Christopher Manny, who will talk about traveling the world with Puck and Matilda, a motorbike and Land Rover respectively, and the books they inspired him to write. Also coming up on World Footprints, former Travel Channel host, and now AARP spokeswoman, Samantha Brown, offers some tips on exploring America's national parks, as well as her own memorable national park experiences in celebration of the U.S. National Park Service centennial this year. And UNESCO's Director for Heritage, Dr. Misch-Tild Rossler, will stop by to discuss the challenges facing world heritage sites in war-torn regions. the Congo's Virunga National Park has been ensnared in years of bloody conflict. National Geographic Explorer correspondent Justin Hall discusses how this vast natural resource can uplift the fortunes of the Congo. So, Justin, you are an Explorer correspondent with Nat Geo, National Geographic. What exactly is an Explorer correspondent?
1: Uh, Wonderfully. uh I'm, uh, ch- my charge and challenge is to, uh, get out there and, and find the stories and bring, bring them back, uh, or tell them in a way that, uh, delivers it to the audience that aren't perhaps as fortunate uh, as myself. So I, I view it as a, a, a real honor to be in this position. And, uh, I, I think, um, I, I must say, I'm not your standard correspondent really. Um, I, I look at the world with wide-eyed enthusiasm and, uh, I think that's something that the team at Explorer have um, recognized. So they've placed me in this position and uh, set me some challenges, and and hopefully it's uh, an easier way for the audience to understand because I'm just just like them, I guess.
3: So, what stories are you searching for?
1: Um, Well, my passion is uh, focused on uh, indigenous, tribal, environmental. Cultural focus issues, uh, wildlife issues, and my first journey for Explorer sent me to the most extraordinary location, Virunga um, in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So, it's sort of north kivu region. And for those of your listeners that don't know about anything about Virunga, if they imagined a, a buckled, um, mountainous landscape peppered by volcanoes, dense, dense jungles, uh, you were talking about a landscape that's about 3,000 square miles of protected space uh, and nestled within that arena are innumerable species but perhaps most importantly uh, and the focus of our show to a certain degree it's home to half of our world's last remaining
0: mountain gorillas Justin, uh Nachio sent you into this conflict zone in sub-Saharan Africa
1: yes, they did <laughs> but they trusted that I wouldn't get into trouble uh, and uh, uh, I think uh, a smile and good intention goes a long way. Of, co- of course, that, that isn't um, uh, the only thing that enables uh, us to do what we do. It's extraordinary connections and rare access and working with, in close collaboration with people on the ground that are known to and trusted by the communities that we enter in the areas that we enter.
0: The uh, conflict zone there in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, for people who are not familiar what 's taking place there
1: to be honest, to, to put everything in context, you really have to look at the last one hundred and twenty five years of this country 's history uh, it 's a, a, a brutal uh, it 's a, a history that 's forced a, a brutal reality ground reality. Um, starting all the way back with uh, King Leopold, the the Belgian king who pretty much claimed Congo from 1885 to 1906 as his private um, landscape. And he pretty much enslaved uh, the Congolese people and set about extracting ivory and uh, rubber. Uh, Pushing forward, it's continued. And I think the main reason is because Congo is, for all its beauty, is actually one of the richest areas on the planet for mineral. in, a, in a, the context of minerals. It's, it has gold, diamonds, uh, rare earth minerals that we use in our phones and electronics, um, hardwoods, timber, tin, zinc, um, all the things that our world need. And the outside world or external forces have looked at the Congo as a, as a treasure trove and pretty much it's been an inconvenience that there, it happens to be the homeland of people. So the most recent conflicts since 1996 to present have produced a horrific statistic and that's that almost 6 million people have died in conflict in this area and that has forged a brutal and uh, complex reality for those that uh, live in the area now.
0: You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're talking about the Congo's Virunga National Park with National Geographic correspondent Justin Hall.
1: So part of our story was to to, um, explore how conservation fits within this landscape. Of course, from afar, we can look at Virunga and think, gosh, what an incredible place, you know. It's got to be saved for the planet. But if you bear in mind that um, along the border of Urunga, four million people live, and they have pretty much nothing but nature to rely on. So that puts enormous pressure on the park. So we were interested in looking at the efforts underway to uh, address that balance.
3: You I, I just want to circle back to something you said earlier. Um, we happen to share a similar passion of um, discovering and exploring, you know, the history of indigenous people. And um, I know that some of the indigenous people in that region, in the region you were in, um, the, the DRC, the um, Democratic Republic of Congo, and uh, w- within Virunga. Are the pygmies, and you know one of the uh confusing things that I read about uh that area is certainly you know the the natural beauty but the overwhelming uh population of impoverished people and flipping you know the coin. I understand that there have been some human rights uh, laws that have been passed to protect the the pygmy population, the indigenous people.
1: Um, Yeah, I'm certain that there are, and there there are uh, big steps being taken in the last couple of years. Um, The area that we were focused on particularly doesn't actually have an indigenous population, not within the park at least. Um, What you do have is... uh, A population that is wholly reliant on nature and lacking in infrastructure, the most basic infrastructure. So that puts enormous pressure on the area that we were focused on. And so again, we were looking at uh, those forces and what efforts were underway to sort of counter that. Mm -hmm.
3: Now, despite being in a conflict zone area, did you have an opportunity to really experience some of the park's Beauty. You talked about, you know, the endangered uh, uh, species of gorillas, and I understand there's, I think, three different um, great apes that uh, are hosted by uh, Varunga Park.
1: My, uh, the, the the time that I had, um, wonderfully, uh, I, I had the uh, great honor of, of stumbling upon a, a family of uh, silver of, of gorillas. Uh, with a, a silverback um, I didn't have time unfortunately to explore the park in much more detail I would love to have flown over it and I know there's uh, the opportunity to do that for those that might be fortunate enough to get into the area um, but uh, it is an incredible landscape full of uh, a multitude of species many endemic
0: Within the vast space that this park takes place uh, I'm sure much of it is inaccessible to people, and so you mentioned about flying over. What are your thoughts about tourism in this park and whether or not it, it has much of a future there?
1: I think the the McKenna Lodge that the Virunga Alliance and the Manuel de Road have built, which is basically the, uh, the place that tourists would uh, be able to go, um, is an extraordinary location for those lucky enough and bold enough to go to it. Um, I think that Emmanuel is fully aware that tourism alone is not going to supply sufficient amounts of money to to fund the park's defence, uh, and that's why that he's looking. His, he and his teams are looking at a multitude of ways, sort of spears that attempt to. Uh, Create infrastructure, and that's through the electrification of uh, the area, harnessing the, the power of uh, hydro dams—not invasive dams that flood areas and and uh, displace peoples, but uh, hydro projects that really just harness the power of the existing Congo's rivers. So that's um, will drive uh, change in the area. Uh, most. Interestingly, and most directly, it will take away the pressure that the use of charcoal places on the region. And that's a really basic thing that many people wouldn't think of. For you and I and most people, you flip a switch or light the stove and we've got power. But in this region, in the absence of options, you have to rely on charcoal. And charcoal is drawn from hardwood. So charcoal production is actually the biggest impacting factor in the, the Park, because charcoal fuels the fires that cooks the food that feeds the people, and it's a cycle of a reliance that, if not broken by it, an alternative, will continue to damage the park.
3: Now, Justin, I know that uh, your trip to Varunga, you know, is, was focused uh, primarily on the conservation, the preservation of the the park and and its natural resources and. That you know the um, the issues that the war zone has really affected um, the conservation efforts. Can you talk a little bit about what you really uncovered and what efforts are being made to preserve Virunga?
1: There are a multitude of forces that impact the area, uh, and for us during this episode of, uh, of uh, Explorer, we thought it was really important to not only look at the, the efforts underway to protect and defend the park. But also the forces that are impacting it in the form of within the park and on its borders are in the region of five to eight thousand armed militia groups vying for control of the natural resources, the charcoal industry, etc. So we um, gained extraordinarily rare access, which will be, which people will see within the show, uh, to a group called the uh, Mai, Mai. and they're sort of a particularly tricky group to deal with, comprised of young young men born of trauma. Um, from 12, 11, 12 through to 21, armed with AK, 20, uh, AK 47s, prone to drinking ethyl alcohol and smoking a lot of ganja. So it was pretty challenging meeting with them, but we went to ask them how they felt about the park's existence. And they, they strangely, they, well, not so strangely, they see themselves as defenders of the, the rights of the people that live along the side of the park. And in fact, they view the park as something of an effrontery.
0: We're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're talking about the Congo's Virunga National Park with National Geographic correspondent Justin Hall. Give us a sense of, of what viewers can expect from the television show on Virunga.
1: Certainly for me it was one of the most uh, extraordinary experiences of my life and um, it will catapult the viewer into a a beautiful exotic yet complex arena where a multitude of forces are impacting nature but where extraordinarily brave characters are standing in front of bullets to defend what they believe is right and that's the the, uh, homelands and territories of the mountain gorillas as well as many other species. It is a complex story, sad at times, but I think there is great um, inspiration available to those that watch in seeing uh, characters like uh, Emmanuel Adenaroa and Innocent Marembé, the uh, people in charge with defending the park.
3: So the the purpose of uh, the show Explorer is basically to raise awareness about some of these issues and not necessarily to encourage tourism because as you mentioned uh, tourism particularly to the Democratic Republic of Congo the, the Virunga Park specifically um, would be a bit challenging
1: um, the, the focus of this particular show uh, is not to draw attention to tourism because as you say you know, it's the brave and the bold that would go there at this point But the area is experiencing a a, um, a fairly rare period of calm rather than the crisis of of the years past, and let's hope that that continues. Uh, But the Explorer Strand series um, focuses on a multitude of issues from a a scientific and exploratory uh, aspect. It's grounded by fact and science and, um, in my mind, has more integrity than than, uh, certainly any other show that I've worked with. Mm. And that's why I'm so excited to be involved in it.
3: We hear the excitement in your voice, Justin. We thank you.
1: Thank you. <laughs> we th- and I uh, really hope you've enjoyed it. It was a wonderful experience.
3: On the National Geographic Channel, we appreciate that, Justin. We appreciate you sharing uh, your story and certainly introducing us to uh, Varunga Park. And I uh, love the work that, that you're doing there. Thank you very much for
1: joining us.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me. For more on Justin's project on the Congos of Arunga National Park, go to channel.nationalgeographic.com forward slash explorer. Also visit this show page on worldfootprints.com for a direct link. Destination spotlight, we will share a taste of the Philippines from the Adventure Travel Show.
4: The Philippines is in Southeast Asia. It's uh, below Taiwan and on top of Malaysia and Indonesia.
3: What do you want people to know about the
4: Philippines? Well, we're made out of 7,107 islands. That's a lot of islands to go through. We have a lot of beaches from white sand, purple sand, pink sand, black sand, everything. And most importantly, it's our people. Our culture, we, um, travelers have been passing through the Philippines for centuries And we're used to having to host people there So that's part of our tourism We want people to come and we open our arms for them
3: what would people see or what should they see for a first-time visitor to the Philippines?
4: Well our places, the beaches of course, food. We have a lot of food there since we're all scattered around culture, diversity, so we have kind of different areas, different kind of food and taste. So like yeah. That. Um Filipino cuisine it's a mix of Chinese, Spanish, American, and we have like we have this famous one that Bobo. It's made out of vinegar and soy sauce and mix it with chicken or pork that's one of our specialties there
3: are there any uh, world heritage sites that a visitor yes. should see
4: yes um, we were standard uh, we were colonized by the Spaniards for 332 years the Americans was there also the Chinese also were there so we have a Spanish there's an old Spanish walled city in Manila called Intramuros so it's walled out for centuries you can see old churches there. Old artifacts, art, and everything—it's all there.
3: And what distinguishes Philippines from some of the other Southeast Asian uh, uh, countries?
4: Uh, Well, I would just say it's because we've been um, a lot of people just went there, Americans. So it's all diverse. I would say that.
3: What do you love about the Philippines?
4: It's the people and the food, and of course the beach. I love the beach.
3: Christopher Manny would tell you, having no fixed address is no big deal after taking several journeys around the world. In 1997, Chris traveled the world on a motorbike affectionately named Puck, which he followed up with a round the world journey in a used Land Rover he called Matilda, which inspired his book Left Beyond the Horizon A Land Rover Odyssey. In 2012, Christopher took Puck out of storage and together with his partner, Laura Patera, left on a four-year ride from Europe to Australia that led to his newest book, Right Beyond the Horizon, A Motorcycle Odyssey. Chris, you took an eight-year-long road trip with Matilda, a 30-year-old Land Rover. Did you set out to be on the road for that long?
2: No, I didn't really. Uh, when I was 27, I um, I just was curious about what lies beyond the horizon, and I just uh, set off. I thought maybe yeah, maybe one or two years I'd be on the road, but uh, I enjoyed it so much that 19 years later, and I'm still traveling, and I have no intention uh, really to stop.
3: And you really didn't plan that journey. I mean, you had no itinerary as well.
2: No, I, I didn't. Um, unexpected things happen on the road again and again, so... It doesn't really make much sense to plan everything very meticulously. Um, And another issue is, of course, uh, I wish to keep my personal freedom. If you make a plan and you stick to everything that is on that plan and tick off boxes one by one, you sort of lose your spontaneity. I prefer to keep my plans open and just accept whatever happens.
0: This round-the-world trip take you to over 100 countries what countries stood out in your mind
2: oh that's very very difficult to answer um especially because my trip was over such a long time period um for example uh the ukraine back then or russia back then isn't what russia is today uh, neither is the united states when i entered the united states in 2003 uh the war with iraq had just started um And um, I I believe maybe the United States would also be uh, different today.
3: Now, in in your book, Left Beyond the Horizon, you talk about some of the ups and downs that you experienced on the road. And and you really kind of threw political correctness out the window. Uh, Talk about that roller coaster ride of emotions and some of the things that you experienced on the road.
2: Just like in daily life, you always have your ups and downs. Um, Good things happen, bad things happen. Uh, It's completely normal. Um, You meet wonderful people and uh, at other times maybe you get problems even at the border entering a country and uh, the vehicle breaks down. Uh, People that you fall in love with, they continue traveling. Or Specifically in Africa, there were quite a few downs. Uh, I entered numerous war zones in the four years that I drove from South Africa all the way up to Egypt. Mm -hmm. So yes, travel on the road is not always bliss and fun. Uh, Sometimes you do have problems. People who believe that they're going to set off and explore the world by motorcycle, by bicycle, or with a Land Rover, and that all their issues and problems will be solved, Um, that's not true. There there are difficulties everywhere.
0: Chris, what did you learn about yourself, uh, learn about this world, and learn about people in general uh, during the course of this uh, long journey?
2: Uh, Oh, that's that's a very good question, also a very difficult question as well. Uh, I guess I've become a little bit more patient over the years and more understanding. Um, what I've definitely learned is that there is no objective truth to any topic or issue, but only subjective realities. What is believed, let's say, in Washington, where you are, or in Bali, where I am right now, might be something completely different. It doesn't mean that one side is wrong and the other side is right. Um, I, yeah, The most important thing for me is that if one has differences of opinion about anything from... Uh, politics to religion to anything at all it's just to uh, be able to exchange those subjective opinions and be able to find some kind of peaceful solution
0: you're listening to world footprints radio with ian and tanya fitzpatrick we're talking to world traveler christopher manny
3: what has been your experience returning home wherever home is for you after such extended travel
2: huh. where is home for me that is a yeah how should i answer that um Home for me after 19 years on the road is no longer any geographical location on the planet. Uh, it's, uh, I was born in New York City, uh, in, in Queens. I was educated in Germany. I worked in Scotland for a while until I set off at the age of 27. And since then, I've been in yeah, about 100 countries I've traveled through. So I've lost any home that one could geographically point to on a map. Home for me is where my loved ones are, and currently Laura, my partner has been with me and traveling with me for the past eight years. Wherever she is, that's where I feel at home.
0: Was she a willing partner in this journey with you, or did you have to twist her arm, or or what?
2: (laughs) No, not at all. Um, I met Lara in Malawi uh, in 2008 in Africa, and uh, she had been an overland tour guide on one of these overland trucks, and I was just puttering up slowly with my Land Rover um, from uh, south africa all the way up to egypt and our paths crossed and a short while later later we fell in love and uh she quit her job with the overland tour company jumped into my land rover eight years later and here we are on motorcycles in bali
3: <laughs> so matilda was actually kind of like what mo- most guys uh, may use uh, as a puppy you know to attract a girl.
2: <laughs> you, you
3: attracted laura with matilda <laughs>
2: it's it's actually fascinating when traveling around the world how everything is so connected with a cause and effect. I, um, when I, on my first journey, I eventually arrived after three years, almost four years, uh, in New Zealand. I met somebody from Scotland, and uh, he convinced me to come to Scotland and work there for a little bit, uh, for a few uh, months. And uh, that's why I eventually found Matilda on a farmer's field, which I purchased for $1,000. And Matilda, yes, eventually Matilda led me to Africa and where I met Laura. So one could even say that without uh, my first journey and without Puk, uh, on my motorcycle book, I might have not have met Laura either. It's very complex and very complicated and fascinating, actually.
0: You've got to be a mechanic and a jack-of-all-trades because there's not necessarily a repair shop where you can go, and I'm sure you've had to master a lot of different things out there.
2: I don't think mechanics is all that difficult, especially <laughs> not with these old vehicles. Uh, mm-hmm. Matilda, as I, uh, as you said, uh, it's 30 years old. Well, now she's even older. Uh, it's in 1975, and you can start it with a crank. Now, mechanics is 5% taking something apart, 5%... Recognizing what's actually wrong and 90% remembering how to put everything back together again <laughs> uh, without any leftover screws.
3: <laughs> so, Chris, in the, the minute that we have left, what do you want readers to experience through the pages of Left Beyond the Horizon?
2: Oh, I just hope they have a wonderful reading journey and uh, maybe perhaps some might be inspired to give traveling a uh, try themselves if they want to.
3: Are there any new insights that your latest book, Right Beyond the Horizon, A Motorcycle Odyssey, will offer?
2: I hope so. I had great fun writing it. It's my my second most favorite passion is book writing, traveling and writing, and of course, Laura.
3: And how can listeners follow your adventures?
2: Uh, probably the best would be on my uh, Facebook site, or uh, they just type in uh, www.christopher-manny.com, and there's also a link to my Facebook site there. I always write in German and in English for international readers.
0: To follow Christopher Manny's many adventures, go to christophermanny.com, where you will find a link to his Facebook page, or visit this show page on worldfootprints.com for a direct link. Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Just ahead, we will sit down with travel television host and AARP spokeswoman, Samantha Brown, as she helps us celebrate the centennial of America's National Park Service. We will also speak to Dr. Mishchel-Russler with UNESCO to learn about some endangered world heritage sites. If you want more travel experiences beyond this radio show, visit our redesigned website, worldfootprints.com.
3: television host, Samantha Brown, for her work on the Travel Channel, where she hosted a number of passport shows to Haiti, Asia, Europe, and more. Samantha has recently joined forces with AARP as a travel spokeswoman to celebrate the centennial of America's National Park Service. Congratulations on your new role as Travel Ambassador for AARP as well. Thank you very much. It's something I'm very proud of. I know that you're helping AARP and its membership right now celebrate the centennial of the National Park Service. So Let's talk about national parks. I think it's very funny that we actually had national parks before we actually, we had the National Park Service. That's correct. Yellowstone
5: uh, was late 1800s, and then the National Park Service was uh, uh, born, I guess, in 1916. Do you remember your first national park? I do. Uh, it was the Grand Canyon, and I actually saw it later in my life. I was probably, oh gosh, I don't know, in my 30s before I went to my first national park, which I think is a little late. Um, but uh, I'll never forget it. Never forget the moment that I saw it.
3: How, what was that like for you, though? I mean, t- tell us about what the Grand Canyon did for you as a, as a child and, and later as an adult. What was that
5: experience like? Well, it's interesting. I had actually traveled all over Europe before I finally got to go to the Grand Canyon. And when you travel throughout Europe you're always told what a young country America is. And we are a young country in terms of its people and its constitution. But it's when you go to the Grand Canyon and you stare down into that Canyon that you realize that we are millions, if not billions of years old, that our land and who we are and our ideals are built on such a sense of permanence and fortitude. And it just filled me with such pride of being where i was from and it's something i've I've been able to go back to the grand canyon four times now since that first visit and it never dissipates that feeling of pride and elation that you get
3: our first national park yellowstone which is very very popular in addition to the grand canyon but there are a number of national parks that are lesser known talk a little bit about those
5: there are 59 majestic parks um, but there are over 400 sites across the United States. So it's really important to um, to look to your own home state and see what's nearby. Most of uh, what the ARP survey found in our travel survey found is that 82% of people actually drive to the national park. They going any kind of flying and they drive. They make it a road trip. So if you're in the, uh, the southeast and the east coast, you have Acadia National Park, but you also have Shenandoah. Valley, which is a, a hiker's paradise. Down in Florida, it's known for the Everglades, but it also has Biscayne National Park, which 95% of it is underwater, and you can go snorkeling and scuba diving. Out in Colorado, there's the uh, the Great Sand Dunes, which has a 75-story sand dune. It's incredible, and you can sled down it. Well, speaking
3: of road trips, what are some of the strategies for planning a visit to some of America's national parks, and tips Uh, for planning a road trip and saving along the road?
5: Well, I think planning a big trip to a national park is an intimidating process, and that is why I'm so proud to be a part of AARP as their travel ambassador, because their whole goal is to make it simple, uh, to keep it affordable and accessible. And so if you just go to travel.aarp.org, there are amazing destination guides on each of these majestic parks. They tell you what the uh, little-known facts are, where the little uh, lesser-known jewels are, the best hikes as well as uh, great places to stay, great places to eat, always with an emphasis on saving money and having a great time.
0: This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we are talking to AARP travel spokeswoman and television host, Samantha Brown, about the 100th anniversary of America's National Park Service.
3: Are there some backstories or some history to, um, that's attached to a national park that might be surprising for a traveler?
5: Um, you know, I'm not sure. There's so many of them. I think they all have a, have a great history and surrounded by an interesting culture. Uh, I always think of uh, the Great Smokies, Mount, great Smokies as uh, one of the most interesting places to visit because you do get that very mysterious southern Appalachian mul- uh, mountain culture as well. So each uh, national park is surrounded by an amazing culture, whether it's the Great Smoky Mountains or uh, going to Hawaii. Where you have the the native Hawaiians and Haleakala and Volcanoes National Park, where the whole idea of the volcano is actually Pele and the goddess of the volcano. So uh, each park has its mystery and um, and is meant to be enjoyed. Do you have a favorite? My favorite park? Well, yes. I, I do love the Grand Canyon, but I, I'm also uh, I, I fell in love with Acadia this year. I got to go to Acadia last year, as well as Denali and the Grand Tetons and There's something about being on the uh, rugged coast of Maine where you're surrounded by evergreens, but you can still smell uh, the salt spray. And then, of course, the day ends with a lobster roll. For me, that that was good.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, so so you incorporate local gastronomy with uh, your travel experience.
5: Of course. Of course.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Now... um, we have uh, we have enjoyed seeing you at a number of uh, industry events, uh, particularly here in Washington, D.C., and, uh, and we miss seeing you on the small screen, and so it begs a question, will we see you again on the small screen?
5: Absolutely. I still do work uh, a lot with the Travel Channel, just not full-time like I used to. I have three-year-old twins, so they keep me very busy, and they don't like it when I'm gone for um, a long time, which... Uh, producing and uh, hosting a travel show does, but I still am on the road a lot. I, um, I'm doing some work with ARP. We're going to be at the Albuquerque Balloon Festival in New Mexico. Uh, we'll be doing a lot more um, just uh, how to navigate um, certain challenging areas of travel, like the airport. I'll be uh, shooting uh, videos for ARP for that as well. So really it's about passing down my knowledge and experience of travel uh, to uh, the number one travel audience there is the fifty plus audience, their number one aspiration is to travel and so we're trying to make that as easy and as accessible as possible
3: and you know and thank you for for saying that that reminds me of uh, then i you know the question that I wanted to ask you about the senior population you know some of these parks uh, require a lot of um, physical uh, strength and you know to to travel to are there certain parks that are more adaptable accessible uh, to the elderly or uh, people who may not have uh, physical capability to hike you know miles along a, a steep trail
5: you know I, that would be uh, an on park, per um, basis uh, knowledge, which I, I don't have, but I do know that all parks are um, handicapped accessible. All parks uh, also offer the access pass, which if you have any sort of permanent disability, you have a free pass to whatever national park there is, um, which is pretty amazing. So they recognize that um, not everyone is a avid or strenuous or expert hiker, and you don't need to to enjoy the park. Uh, there are amazing lookouts, even from Grand Canyon to Acadia, uh, things that make um, the park accessible to everyone, and that really is their goal. Also, again, back to uh, ARP, all of their destination guides do uh, do talk about that of making things more accessible to what is accessible, what isn't accessible. So, really, going back to the guides in your planning would be the best bet.
3: Samantha Brown, thank you so much for joining us
5: again. Thank you. Talk to you soon, Tanya.
0: To plan your visit to a U.S. national park, visit nps.gov. We will also have a link to that website on this show page at worldfootprints.com. In
3: this destination spotlight, we talked to Susie Page at the Adventure Travel Show in Washington D.C. about the unique offerings of Northern Florida. What parts of
6: Northern Florida? You ask. Well, Susie tells us the um, Swanee River, all the springs up there. It's from Gainesville um, over to Monticello, the, to the Gulf of Mexico, to the Georgia border. That whole north-central, very rural, undeveloped part of Florida.
3: Now, what distinguishes uh, North Florida from other parts of Florida? Because when, sometimes people will paint the state with a broad brush.
6: So, what makes your area different? We're very rural and undeveloped. We have a lot. We have more freshwater natural springs than anywhere else on the planet. We've got several rivers, all undeveloped. Um, I only have one traffic light in my county, so it's very, very rural, very undeveloped. So, it's a nice, peaceful place to come and to camp. Um, there's cabins, there's motels. It's very uh, mom-and-pop type oriented, very rural.
3: Where should a first-time visitor uh, go and,
6: and see and, and do when coming to your area? It kind of depends on what they want to do. If they want to do some paddling, I would suggest they start with the Swanee, the biggest river, and, padd- and go out from there. Um, you can... S- um, if they want to do more of the antiquing, the type of stuff, up in the north-central Florida, um, closer to Tallahassee, there's some old antebellum towns from the Civil War that didn't get burnt down, and they've got some of the mansions and the stuff that you can tour, and uh, they've got the little stores, art, art stores, that kind of thing. What do you love most about North Florida? I love the fact that it's not crowded, that it's um, very peaceful and quiet. We came from the Tampa area with a lot of people and I can go and paddle down the Suwannee River and not even meet anyone while I'm on the river. So just to get away from it all, see nature, see the fish jump, hear the birds and the owls, watch the stars, there's no light pollution, um, just very peaceful recharging.
3: Why would you tell somebody to come visit and tour your area?
6: To get away from it all, to recharge, to uh, just rest, collect yourself, get your center back, and then get on with your life, you know, but just, just to get away.
0: The United Nations Dr. Mishtil Rosler tells us how conflicts around the globe are imperiling UNESCO World Heritage Sites.
3: So- what is the mission of the UNESCO World
7: Heritage Center? The World Heritage Center is the secretariat of the World Heritage Convention, which is an international legal instrument which covers the heritage of humanity, which is of outstanding universal value. It's so exceptional that it has to be protected by all of humanity.
3: Now, how many sites are currently on the World Heritage list? We have
7: uh, 1,031 sites on the World Heritage List, and there have been questions, which whether this was the uh, uh, original idea of the convention, but um, there has been so much interest by countries to identify sites and to transmit that and to protect them and transmit them to future generations.
3: So how are sites chosen then for the list?
7: Um, normally, a country prepares a tentative list which identifies potential sites, and from this national list, they choose a site uh, for to prepare a nomination dossier, which will be sent to the World Heritage Center We review, whether this is a complete, which means including legal protection, management of the site, all the documentation, and also the comparative um, uh, evaluation, whether the site is in a global context uh, of a potential outstanding universal value, and then we send it to our advisory bodies. This is the uh, um, International Union for the Conservation of Nature for the Natural Sites, and Ecomos, the International Council on Monuments and Sites for Cultures. And then this goes into the World Heritage Committee, and it's actually this intergovernmental committee which um, uh, decides whether a site is inscribed on the World Heritage List or not.
3: Does Italy still hold the greatest number
7: of world heritage sites yes but it's closely followed uh, you know by a number of other countries especially in Europe Europe is really overrepresented in comparison with other parts of the world so we have many sites in Spain um, France Germany the UK but um, very closely are um, uh, uh, areas in Asia like uh, from India or China um, and they express also a great interest India- chance, uh, great interest to um, uh, submit every year new nominations for the World Heritage List.
3: Recently, I understand the UNESCO World Heritage Center called for a united action to protect vulnerable sites. How many sites are we close to losing?
7: Um, On the list of World Heritage in Danger, we have 48 sites which are included there, which range from the Bamiyan Valley in Afghanistan to five sites in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, such as Virunga National Park, where we have the last mountain gorillas, um, uh, two areas in Iraq, as you can imagine, and in Syria. In Iraq, we have three out of the four World Heritage sites on the Danger list, and in Syria, all six World Heritage Sites on the danger list, because these are in conflict regions.
3: Most World Heritage Sites are cultural, like the recently liberated archaeological site of Palmyra, and, but I was surprised to see that on the endangered list itself, there's a significant number of natural sites that are, are listed, and, and that was surprising to me. Why is that, do you think?
7: Um, they are listed for different um, reasons. Uh, there are also different threats to those sites. Some of them are um, threatened by climate change um, some of them are threatened by ill-advised infrastructure and other development, including mining. Um, some of them are threatened by the dam construction, which reduces the water into the site. So it's, it's a very um, diverse, uh, there are very diverse uh, reasons to put a site on the danger list. But what we saw, we had a growing um, uh, situation of conflict in the world, and that affected also um, the five sites. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So, what are UNESCO's
3: plans for rehabilitating sites like Palmyra, which we mentioned earlier, or other sites that are on the endangered list that are outside of conflict zones?
7: Now, um, for conflict zones, we follow, of course, uh, UN rules and regulations, and that means we have to see whether or not we can actually move into these areas. We have upcoming missions to um, some sites in Syria, like Damascus and the Crack de Chevalier, but for Palmyra, you need to see that this is an area where there are lots of mines, So we are also responsible for the safety of the experts and our own staff going on such missions. So this needs to be evaluated carefully. But in any case, um, we will definitely do uh, fact-finding missions and rapid assessment missions to assess uh, damages. We also do regular uh, monitoring of every single site on the danger list. Um, we have major projects with extra budgetary funding in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and we have many stakeholders trying to help us to save those sites.
3: This is World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick, and we're talking to UNESCO's World Heritage Center director, Dr. Rostler. Our The sites outside of the conflict zones, I'm talking about some of the natural parks and other uh, archaeological sites, are they still open uh, for the most part to tourists? And I'm referring to those specifically that are on the danger list.
7: Yes, for example, you can still go to the city of Pultosi in, in Bolivia or to the Belize um, barrier reef system. Uh, that's no problem. But there are some areas like uh, the Bamyan Valley or the Minaret of Jam in Afghanistan, which is uh, still uh, highly volatile uh, areas where I don't recommend uh, <laughs> that you just uh, uh, walk in. And um, uh, in Mali, the situation in Timbuktu and the Tomb of Aschia also, uh, is, is not easy, as you can imagine, although we have reconstructed um, 14 out of the 16 mausoleums which were um, uh, destroyed by terrorists, and um, uh, colleagues are uh, again working there.
3: Can tourists assist in some of those operations or some of those rehabilitation uh, efforts?
7: Uh, in areas which are not safe, no. Right, <laughs> That's right. a simple answer. <laughs> right. But in other, we have lots of volunteers working at World Heritage uh, areas. Um, um, the states parties are always uh, looking for other types of assistance. So um, I think this can be observed by uh, tourists uh, going to uh, World Heritage sites. Uh, for example, if you go to the United States of America to Everglades National Park, um, that was a site which uh, was uh, also on the, uh, was put on the danger list and there you see the efforts by um, and the state party uh, and the uh, local site management and it has actually quite a nice uh, and interesting uh, visitor center so you can learn yourself about this exceptional wetland site
3: and so it's most advisable for a traveler who's interested in doing some volunteer work uh, on, on travel to contact the sites, uh, management themselves.
7: Of course, if they, if they take, for example, volunteers, um, we have ourselves uh, here a, a youth program and a volunteer program which you find on our webpage www.whc.unesco.org uh, and um, uh, so you can find out what we do in terms of youth programs, uh, volunteering, etc. But the normal procedure would be to go um, through uh, the National Commission for UNESCO which exists in every single country, and to identify whether they have such a program for volunteers.
6: Now,
3: each heritage site has a significant backstory and very powerful history. Is there a particular heritage site whose backstory has resonated with you?
7: Oh, as you know, I have written a book which is called uh, Many Voices, One Vision together with Professor Cameron from from Canada on the early history of the World Heritage Convention. So we have documented a lot of the history of uh, these sites, and there are many sites, for example, those with associative values of the memory of humankind, starting from Auschwitz um, for the history of the Holocaust to Robben Island for the history of Apartheid or Ile de Gore uh, for the history of the slave trade. Uh, I think these sites are very important for the history of humanity uh, as a whole. Um, but there are also sites which are just uh, having a vow effect on tourists um, because they are so uh, really so unique. If you go to Victoria Falls, for example a transboundary site between Zambia and Zimbabwe um, and you see uh, the falls falling into the sky the water drops into the sky and you hear the thunder i mean it's it's just
3: fantastic during the course of research for your book was there a heritage site whose history you found most surprising and would surprise most
7: people it's always interesting um, uh, to look at the sites uh, if you think of the discovery of Machu Picchu uh, which is quite uh, amazing which is actually a natural and a cultural site a so called mixed site for both values and now uh, the history is that um, it's in a way integrated in the Capac which is the, in- uh, the Inca uh, trail and um, you have the linkages among the different countries of the uh, Inca Empire.
3: Uh, Dr. Russell, before we, we go, I have to ask you about the genesis, the meaning behind your first name, uh, I Did your parents... Plan, I guess, your path,
7: <laughs> your current path, <laughs> uh, kind of vicariously? <laughs> what a question. I'm named after Mechtild von Magdeburg, who was a mystician in the 12th century and who especially looked into nature. And yes, I have a PhD also in natural sciences in addition to, in addition to a background as cultural geographer. So I don't know whether this was planned, but it's quite amazing, I have to say.
3: <laughs> Talk about synergy. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Dr. Rosler, thank you so much for joining us today on, uh, on World Footprints, and uh, thank you for the work that you're doing to preserve humanity's history. Thanks to you, and I also count on you. For more on UNESCO's programming for World Heritage, go to WHC.UNESCO, that's UNESCO.org. We'll also have a link to that website on this show page at worldfootprints.com. I have to say, dear, I'm very, very proud about today's show. The constant theme, I think, was conservation, and that's a very important part of what World Footprints is about. That's very foundational to our mission. And I learned a lot from our guest, from the importance of conservation to the power of tourism in the peace process and just really how communities balance between using valuable natural resources uh, to human rights and in conservation and preservation itself. And I was very intrigued to hear that tourism for the Congo um, is not sustainable enough for that area and so they've used a lot of ingenuity in creating other methods and, and other products to help make that community that country more stable
0: well this is really a you know a powerful show just as uh, you said and from the conservation standpoint sustainability and also just the importance of parks, national parks, in stabilizing uh, countries and providing opportunities for countries to grow, develop, preserve their culture. But we also realize, too, how fragile these ecosystems are, these parks can be. And I think that's one of the lessons that kind of comes through as uh, indirectly the issue of conflict zones was was something that kind of tied together many of the themes here and many of the guests in the show. And having something like a national park system is not something really to be taken for granted. It's really important because that helps to preserve culture. That helps to make uh, conservation possible. And it also shows that these precious resources Thrive in places that are stable politically, and I think that's one of the things when we listen to what Dr. Russler had to say, all of these important cultural and heritage sites in places such as the Congo are endangered because of political conflict, because of civil war and so forth. And so it really makes you appreciate just how important these resources are and just how perilous they are, too, because of things that happen in our world.
3: Mm-hmm. One of the other things I loved about today's show from both Samantha and Chris... Uh, Samantha and my experience were very similar. We traveled throughout Europe before we really explored our own country. And like her, I've gained an incredible appreciation for what the United States has to offer. And so I think the travel abroad really added to my interpretation of what the United States has to offer. And I loved talking to Chris. Uh, as well um, because he represented somebody who enjoys growth opportunities and I mm-hmm. think when you live outside of your comfort zone as he has you grow and I loved that about his story and certainly his uh, very unconventional ways of traveling around the world. I mean, the way he has traveled is not comfortable, and it's not for the faint of heart. And uh, now he's traveling with a partner, and I, I can just imagine you and I <laughs> on the back of a motorcycle or in a Land Rover traveling around the world. And, you know, some of the, the let's say, creative differences we might uh, encounter
0: Well, that's why uh, it isn't for the faint of heart, and it's probably not uh, necessarily uh, all that good for stable relationships either. But uh, speaking about Chris, uh, again, because he's traveled so much, he's he's seen a lot of the world, He's, he's interacted with a lot of people, he's traveled through conflict zones, as he says, and he's been taken out of his comfort zone, but... In in meeting people and going to all of these places, he's come to appreciate just how having a tolerance for differences or a patience for or an understanding for what other people go through is really important. And it's something that, if you think about it, fundamental to just having positive relationships, to having functioning countries, to having functioning political systems. So I thought that was great to hear from Chris.
3: Well, as we close today, I'd certainly like to share another quote with you. And it's a quote from Henry Miller. One's destination is never a place, but a new way of seeing things. And I think that quote is very appropriate to the show that we've shared with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing our next journey with you on
6: World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeart Radio, Stitcher, iTunes and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn and live it at worldfootprints.com.